Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Just a note that this is chapter two of our three-part series on the Myers-Briggs. So if you haven't heard the first chapter, we recommend going back and listening to that first. Okay, here we go. Now to begin, I'd like to ask the first question of Isabel to get our conversation going. And that's one that many people ask me. How did you come to create the Myers-Briggs Pest Indicator? It's a video from 1977. Isabel Briggs Myers is 79 years old at this point. She's seated against a red brick wall, surrounded by four Myers-Briggs devotees. There's a bit of construction in the background, but they are totally focused on Isabel, taking turns asking her questions. And they want her to tell the story again. How did it all start? Well, I suppose the very beginning of it was that I fell in love with a man who was different from me on three of the four preferences that make types. And this was noticed by my family that here was something different, admirable, but different. His name was Clarence, but everyone called him Chief. At first, he threatened to drive a wedge between Isabel and her mother, but eventually their marriage is what would convert her to Catherine's gospel of type. But where Catherine saw a religion of personality, Isabel saw a product with world-changing potential. And now, as most of you know, it has become one of the most widely used instruments for everyday people. I just find it curious. It's widely used in industry. It's it's even used in the military. It's everywhere. This week, chapter two of our three-part series, Isabel takes her mother's theory of type and turns it into the world's most popular personality test, for better or for worse. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer. And I'm Chris Yagusa. Today, the rise of the Myers-Briggs. Chapter 2, Isabel. In the summer of 1915, in Washington, D.C., Isabel was getting ready to head off to college. She'd chosen Swarthmore, a hundred miles away from Catherine and the Cosmic Laboratory of Baby Training. And it seemed like Isabel would have nothing to do with personality typology. That was her mother's passion project, not hers. Isabel was making her own life. She wrote in her diary that she was ready to, quote, shake things up. She did the usual college stuff, got a little rowdy, was maybe a tad unladylike. And then she met the man she'd eventually marry, Chief, a good-looking farm boy from Iowa who turned out to be a socialist. Catherine did not approve. Maybe earlier, her mother's disapproval would have reeled Isabel right back in, but not now. Isabel stuck with her new husband, all while Catherine watched, horrified. All the training Catherine put her through, all the no-no drills, couldn't compete with youthful rebellion. But in the end, she came back to her mother. And by the 40s, personality typing was as much a passion for Isabel as it had been for Catherine. She gave a few reasons for why it mattered. That it was World War II, and increasing human understanding was needed now more than ever. 
and that during the war, people were being assigned to jobs they hated. Wouldn't it be better for morale if they got jobs that fit their types? But the reason she gave most often was that it was because of Chief, how different he was from her. Where I'm intuitive, he's sensing her. I'm feeling, he's thinking, and her, I'm perceptive, he's judging, as I just confessed. And this has worked beautifully with the help of fifth year of our marriage. I don't think it would have been anywhere near such fun or so good if we hadn't known about time. By the time of this recording, they've been married for 60 years, and Isabel is putting a positive spin on it. But those early years had been tough. Sometimes Chief even suggested they'd get divorced. And it sounds like her mother's theory of types, it helped her accept his differences. It might have actually saved their marriage. She set to work. In 1943, Isabel designed the first version of the indicator. And instead of following Jung's ideas exactly, she went off script. Catherine had borrowed much of Jung's language introverted versus extroverted, sensing versus intuitive, thinking versus feeling. But Isabel added a fourth dimension, judging and perceiving, J and P. Judging types, she said, try to control life. Perceiving types are more flexible. While Catherine approached personality typing as an almost sacred art, Isabel's indicator was a straightforward questionnaire. And some of the early questions are charmingly dated. Things like, do you A, very much enjoy stopping at soda fountains, or B, usually prefer to use your money for other things? And just like her mom, Isabel started collecting data with the subjects most readily available to her, her kids, Anne and Peter, and all their classmates. But maybe the most important choice she made was to focus on the positive, like her mother had. Well... From the very beginning, we have felt that the type should be characterized by what they have rather than by what they lack. Mm -hmm. Of course, it stands to reason that if you're much better in one thing than in another, then you're not as good in the other as you are in the first thing. But why dwell on that? (laughs) The the valuable and and constructive things Mm -hmm. are the things that people have. You should be able to read your Myers-Briggs description and think, yeah, Who I am is different, and it's good. And that is possibly the most appealing thing about the indicator. There are no good types or bad types, and you don't have to be anyone else. Just be the best version of yourself. You'll hear that from a lot of people who take the test. It makes them feel good about themselves. People proudly display their four letters on dating profiles, on resumes, on Twitter bios. They join Facebook groups just for their type. For my type, INFP, I found a Facebook group with over 20,000 members. And it's not the only INFP group. But some see something sinister in the test and its history. The very idea of sorting people into categories. Historically, it's got a pretty abysmal track record when taken to extremes. But there's more. Catherine Briggs had some eugenicist beliefs. And it sounds like Isabel did, too. So for instance, she doesn't believe that anybody with an IQ less than 100 is worth typing. Merve Emre, author of The Personality Brokers. Because she doesn't believe they have the capacity, the intellectual capacity to express personality preferences. 
There are several interesting letters in the archive where corporations write to her and say, could we test someone who drives one of our trucks? And she says, no, no, I don't think a truck driver is worth testing. And Mervais sees a recurring theme in Isabel and her mother's work, purity, including, in some cases, racial purity. Before she turned her full attention to the type indicator, Isabel had a brief career as a mystery writer. Her second novel was called Give Me Death. Its whole premise is that there is a wealthy, southern, aristocratic, former plantation-owning family where the members of the family start to kill themselves because they are led to believe that they have one drop of African-American blood running through their veins. The Myers-Briggs Foundation has a statement about the book on their website, arguing that writing a book about racist characters doesn't make the author racist. Which... It doesn't. But Mervais read the book, and she doesn't buy their take. She says the novel is fixated on purity of blood and what it means to be impure. The question is, are you being critical of that or not? And I do not think that this is a novel that is critical of it. Still, when we try to make sense of Isabel and her writing, historical context matters. This is a novel that comes out right before Gone with the Wind and how, you know, the early 30s are this moment of romanticizing the plantation and of romanticizing the legacy of the South. And so I'm not saying that she was uniquely bad. I mean, there were plenty of other people who were doing this. But I do think that it is troubling, and it's especially troubling because its author then goes on to design an entire system of people categorization. By all measures, Isabel's indicator was a tribute to her mother. She even named it Briggs Myers, insisting her mother's name came first. But Catherine herself wasn't impressed. These answer choices Isabel was forcing on people, a simple yes or no, please. Type is never so simple. But Isabel was already running with it. It didn't take long for her to find clients. Within a few years of launching the indicator, she'd landed contracts with government bureaus, colleges, and even corporations. And these corporations, they saw a way to turn this test into profit. For instance, Isabel said that extroverted intuitive types were risk takers. For an insurance company, that might mean they're more of a liability. So charge them more, right? And then she got an invitation. She told a friend it was manna from heaven, but it almost proved her undoing. The invitation was from the Educational Testing Service. The Educational Testing Service, or ETS, is the company that runs the SATs. It's the place where she roamed the halls with her homemade energy drink, and the employees called her that horrible woman. The founder and head of the company had taken a shine to Isabella, saw the potential in her questionnaire. He hired her on as a consultant, ready to shepherd her indicator into the world. And as much as the men of ETS ridiculed her, Isabel was undeterred. She knew what she had. And just when it seemed like everything was falling into place, along came Stricker, Larry Stricker. Years later, Isabel's collaborator, Mary McCauley, recalled this saga at a conference. And she said to me, uh, 
I felt like he came over the woods. I sent for the Marines, and they came over the woods shooting at me. So she wrote a fairly, <laughs> she had a file folder that said, Stricker, damn him. <laughs> Stricker, damn him. Larry Stricker was a 27-year-old kid fresh out of his PhD program in social psychology who'd just started at ETS. And his job was to create a manual for Isabel's indicator. He worked on it for months. And when he finally shared his draft, Isabel was not pleased. When the thing came out, even Stricker himself admitted it was not a manual. It was a critique of the type indicator done in the a tradition of the graduate school he had come from in which the more faults you could find with a, a piece of work, the better critic you were. And it was this pure and simple. And I was annoyed. To Isabel, Larry was a never-ending thorn in her side, a snobby PhD who was hell-bent on destroying her life's work. Larry Stricker. Damn him. Damn him, right. Yeah, that, that's going to be on my tombstone. We called Larry for this story. He's 88 now. We were honestly a little nervous after hearing Isabel's description of the guy. But he was nice, happy to answer all our questions and talk about the old days. And he remembers that time pretty differently from Isabel. Back in September 1960, he was just starting his career. I was a young psychologist, a scientist, and I was interested in uh, doing this project uh, and uh, doing the best I can. And things started off well. At first, he and Isabel got along fine. Unlike his colleagues, Larry didn't dismiss her. Even though she didn't have a background in statistics or psychology, Larry says she'd figured out ways to do things on her own. And what she came up with was a lot like what someone with formal training would have done. He met Isabel on his very first week on the job, and immediately, of course, Isabel did what she did with everyone that crossed her path. She got him to take the test. And uh, I took it, and uh, I was an INTJ, Introverted Intuitive Thinking Judging. And she uh, uh, immediately reported this to uh, Chauncey. Henry Chauncey, the boss. And uh, he sent a memo saying, well, it's about time we have a judging type on this project. And I think he lived to uh, regret those words. Larry had a few issues with the indicator. First, it's supposed to be Jungian, but he said it didn't really align with Jung's theory. Isabel's definitions of extroverted and introverted, for example, slightly different than Jung's. And second, there's the whole idea of sorting people into distinct types. So, like, height. Some people are tall, some people are short, but most people fall somewhere in the middle. And to Larry, Isabel's theory is like saying, there are tall people, and there are short people, and that's it. Extroverted or introverted. Feeling or thinking. But when Larry looked at the data, these categories didn't make sense. Most people were somewhere in the middle. And these were just a few of his complaints. Maybe Larry should have seen it coming. He was, after all, criticizing Isabel's life's work. But his relationship with her took a big turn. 
He says at one point she even tried to get him fired. And her reaction really got to him. I, I lived nearby in Princeton. And it got to be when um, I knew she was coming, I would stay home. And when I, when I drove in, into ETS, my stomach would start burning because it was so, uh, you know, so, so stressful. Anyway, I was a sensitive young man and uh, this bothered me. The next few years were hard for Isabel, too. Not only was young Larry Stricker undermining her life's work, but Isabel's family was descending into crisis. Both her kids were on the verge of divorce. Her father died. And her mother was dying, too. And in a way that seemed particularly cruel for a woman who devoted her life to understanding the mind. Catherine had dementia. And then ETS let Isabel go as a consultant. She was costing him a lot of money. And with the relentless critiques from Larry and others at the company, she just lost her credibility with them. Although maybe she'd never had it. And this was the moment that the Myers-Briggs type indicator could have faded into obscurity. But as we know, that's not what happened in the end. It, I just find it curious. It's widely used in industry. It's, it's even used in the military. It's just everywhere. Larry thinks the positive descriptions have a lot to do with that. But also that anyone can see themselves in this test. It's like uh, you go to a Chinese restaurant and the waiter at the end brings the fortune cookies and the fortune cookies, you are not always in touch with your feelings. I said, my God, how did the waiter know that? There's a famous study where a psychologist gave his uh, students, he, he gave them some kind of personality test. And then he just randomly gave people results that were not theirs. And they all said, oh, wow, boy, that really describes me. It's called the Barnum effect. And it basically means that a description of something is so vague that anyone can see themselves in it and just latch on. It's kind of the same deal with horoscopes. It's named after the classic showman P.T. Barnum, a man famous for his hoaxes. Because the psychologist who coined the term Barnum Effect was disturbed by personality tests, how easily they duped people. But is that what's going on here? Is this all just smoke and mirrors? Larry's criticisms are significant, but they aren't necessarily fatal to the test. Maybe the test doesn't stay true to the Jungian theory. But so what? As long as it works, who cares? And so what if we're on a continuum? Buckets can still be useful. Take the height example. Say you're assigning people to stock grocery store shelves. Anyone in the tall bucket stocks the top shelves. Anyone in the short bucket does the lower ones. Sure, there are lots of people who aren't strictly tall or short, but it's better than assigning people at random, right? An oversimplification, but maybe a useful one. So is the Myers-Briggs test useful? And does it measure something real about who we are? Or is it a fortune cookie? Because if it's a fortune cookie, that's a problem. The Myers-Briggs is everywhere. What if people are hiring only ESTJs or only looking to date INFPs? What if someone thinks, these are my four letters. They define who I am and all I can be. And those letters don't mean anything. 
Next week, our final chapter, Myers-Briggs. What is it good for? This episode was produced by me, Johanna Mayer, and... Chris Igusa. And... Ella Fetter. Our music was composed by... Daniel Peterschmidt. Who also mastered this episode and helped with archival research. We have fact-checking help from Cosmo Bjorkenheim. Peter Geyer provided us with archival audio. As always, you can find transcripts and more at sciencefriday.com slash diction. And thank you to all the reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Layla Eller, nickname 8375, we see you. Nadia Ortelt is our chief content officer, and she's decided to stop speaking and start communicating with her family exclusively through the art of mime. And this was noticed by my family that here was something different. Admirable, but different. See you next week with Chapter 3.